Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey everybody, James Shepard here. Thank you for taking time to listen to the Merchant Sales Podcast. So what an exciting episode today. If you are an individual agent or a small ISO and you're like, how do I get my business to the next level? You're going to love the interview that I do today with Kyle. We're talking about scaling up, hiring your first few employees, getting capital, you know, making tough decisions like what should you do in-house versus what should you have the processing company do? So really, if you're looking to scale up, this is just a must-listen interview. Then in the Insiders Report, Patty talks about, frankly, a shocking um, you know, revelation from Visa about this switch over to debit. I mean, at least it shocked me of just consumer behavior switching from credit to debit, which has really big impacts on uh, things like surcharging uh, and, and other areas like that. So that's very interesting. And then we close it out with questions from the field where I talk about branding and how do you as an individual agent or small ISO represent yourself when you're working for a big processing company? Do you say, I'm, I'm James with XYZ Company, or do you have your own local brand? And so I talk about that in the questions in the field. So it's a great episode. I think we've got a lot of really good information for you today. Let's dive in, and I wish all of you tremendous success. All right, everybody, I'd like to welcome you to the Merchant Sales Podcast. And uh, today I'm joined by Kyle. Kyle is the CEO and head of product for Mercantile Processing. How are you doing today, Kyle? I'm doing great. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, you know, first of all, I should, you know, tell of our, all of our listeners that we're doing this on video for the first time. So uh, if you want to check it out on our YouTube channel, uh, we do have the uh, episode up there. So, um, Kyle and I are going to talk today about uh, really scaling up your your ISO, whether you're an individual or a small office, and we want to kind of dive into some practical tips for those that are looking to, to build out, really building that merchant services business, not just an individual. Um, before we get into that, though, Kyle, we'd love to get your backstory. So how did you get into this crazy industry? How'd you end up at Mercantile? Yeah, um, so started Mercantile um, just under 15 years ago. Oh, wow. Uh, I was a sophomore in college, um, reading a book about residual income and businesses to start, always an entrepreneur at heart, used to sell glow sticks on 4th of July, I used to do all kinds of stuff to sell. So I was always sure. you know, figuring that idea. So I found this, um, was an agent for a small company that we kind of found, sold about seven or eight deals, um, you know, was, was, was serving and bartending at night and selling during the day, um, built up a small, small little book. And then, um, Eventually found the green sheet. So I don't know if that patty's on the line, but oh, uh, yes. and, and then actually found the ISO that we worked with for about four years after that. They were the centerfold of the green sheet back then, IRM payments. Oh, yes. Uh, I remember, remember them well. Yeah. Yeah. They've a uh, good, great company. They've since been bought by Shift 4, but that was my first agent relationship. Um, about two years into to running it. So what might should have been my senior year of college, um, we actually got our first opportunity for a small community bank. In the area nine branch bank we started doing their work we were bidding against the big guys they they liked us i was 22 years old i still remember that meeting uh you know the stress levels of that but we got our first bank um the next month we uh did 17 apps hired my roommate from college and we kind of grew from there so that's <laughs> that's the beginning of the industry so and then just i've been staying in it ever since wow. i have to say i i love all the stories that i that i hear from people especially in this business people who started off in college, you know, yeah. uh, as, as a side job and then built a great portfolio. It's, it's, it just, it just speaks to the um, obvious um, opportunities that this business creates. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Uh, it's it's really uh, really been interesting, Patty. I think a lot of the people that we've interviewed really fit that same uh, kind of profile. Oh, yes. You know, got in, and, and some of them, you know, did a little bit of a different path, Kyle. Some of them would, uh, you know, they got their first job maybe out of college at a credit card processor, and they thought it was their this mindless drone job that they were going to get rid of in six months when they found a real job, and here it is, twenty years later, and, and they have their own ISO or whatever it is. So. And we've even had a few people who said, oh, the heck with college. I'm just going right? to keep doing this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Kyle, um, I, I want to dive into this topic. And it, it's such an interesting one to me because, you know, uh, as I've been having conversations with individual agents over the last, you know, eight weeks to 12 weeks during COVID-19, one of the things that's been super interesting to me is that many of them are taking this time to take that step back and you know, think about life and think about their business and what do I want to do with the next three to five years of my life. And what I'm, what I'm sensing is a lot of individual agents and maybe small ISOs that have one or two employees, they're thinking about starting their own ISO and really kind of scaling up and doing that. And so I would love for you to kind of frame this topic for us a little bit and tell us, um, you know, how do you view this, this decision? What are, what's, what are the things that they need to be thinking about when they're, when they're talking about scaling their business and taking it to the next level? Yeah. So, um, you know, so this is, they always talk about, you know, the, there's always steps along the way and you have the failures that you've made that make you kind of the business owner that you are today. Um, about our six or so year in, we decided to take the leap that you're kind of talking about. These guys have right. all taken, you know what I mean? Right. We said, okay, let's borrow $250,000. Um, you know, I took my, my best sales guy and my operations person. We made them, you know, directors of sales and we were, we were going to the trade shows and setting up booths and right. trying to find agents and all that stuff. Um, right. We hired extra support people. So, you know, we took that leap of faith um, and we did that for about um, 18 months before we quickly realized that, yeah, our app count was up. Yes, we were, we were doing more, but you know, we didn't have the, the funding and the, and the size to really scale that to the level of you know, what you have to do to make that work. So, right. you know, we took some steps back. We, you know, we come with a couple of mistakes there where, you know, I took my best sales guy out of the field and I made him a director. Right. Well, that that count. You know what I mean? I took my yes. operations person out and made her a RM, you know, so now who's running the, the shop every day, you know? So, right. so some of those things, when you're trying to make those decisions, you're going to go, okay, make sure first you're not cannibalizing, you know, what your current situation is. So if, if you're the CEO and, you know, you're the, you're the main sales guy and you're going to go out well, and hire four more people. Well, four more people come with four more problems, employee handbooks, right. benefits, people going out sick, stuff like that. So, so take a really good look at, you know, what you're going to change to make your ISO grow and how does that cannibalize what you're currently doing? I would also say, you know, really look at your model. You know, we, I would say the mistake was going the 1099 model for us because we didn't really anticipate said, yeah, we can, we can increase our app count, but when you're giving 50, 75% away to an agent and you have an employee you're paying to run that agent, mm. you have to bring in, we'll say 75%, you have to bring in four apps of a 1099 rep to equal if you brought your own app in that was 100%. Right. And that's not including the overhead. That's just right. that's exactly. just making up for that's the residual the, loss. <clears throat> yeah, right. the sheer numbers. Yes. Um, so when you kind of look at your model of going, okay, if I want to go the 1099 route, you know, you've got to almost quadruple your app count to make the same amount of money you're making as a one man, two man shop, right? You know, and that's, you know, do you really want to grow and get the headaches and do all that stuff just to make the same amount of money? So, right. um, you know, if I had to go back and do it all over again, I, I would have, I would have grown the ISO and we still continue to do it now, but we revamped our model. Pretty much everybody's an employee. Um, we do have some 1099 contractors, even from back then that are still with us. 
Um, but we focused largely on, I call them the bigger guys. They, they've, they've already got $100,000 or more in residuals. Right. They want a shop to put their deals with that sure. are technology-based or something like that. So that's how we've changed our model a little bit. But you know, when you go in it as an ISO or you try and go the ISO route, I think everybody in their head goes, well, I could do a better job than the ISO that I'm currently putting deals with. So I should start my own. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and you know, I love this conversation, Kyle, because uh, something I'm really passionate about in the industry that, that, you know, and it's my own fault as well, but that we just don't talk about enough. It, it, when you, when you watch my videos or you go to the green sheet, there's this perception that there's these two types of entities. There is the individual agent. And then there is these humongous companies that have, 200 employees and a thousand agents. And it's like, which one of those do you want to be? And the truth is there's a ton of room in the middle. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't even have to have a 1099 person that you're associated with. You know, you can grow with, like you mentioned, W2 employee model. And I think, I think there's a lot of that white space in the middle of figuring out how do you want to do that? Um, You know, one of the things I think is so interesting is this question of, you know, first employee. You know, you mentioned your friend from college. Um, I've talked to so many salespeople. Uh, it's a, a really good example of one is a guy named Vic. I've actually interviewed him on the podcast before. Uh, individual agent I've known for, I don't know, 10 years and built up very successful business. And I w- he hired me as a consultant to figure out, okay, how do I get to the next level? And one of the things we did was we hired his first employee. And it's, uh, I think she's 30 hours a week. And it's like just a, an administrative person. You know, Mm -hmm. doing paperwork, you know. And so to your point, I think a lot of people in this business, for some reason, they all naturally think in order to scale, it means hiring 10, it means bringing on 1099 contractors. Why? Like, yes, that's, that's one option, but you realize you could also get an administrative person. You could also get an office manager. You could also get somebody to do your installs. So you could, it's like, you don't have to cannibalize your own efforts and the efforts of your best people in order to scale. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And also kind of this idea of first employee, you know, what have you seen play out successfully? Who do we hire as our first employee? What do we, what do we want to think about when we're making that decision as an individual agent? So I totally agree with what you're saying is, you know, I think, I think everybody thinks scaling is increasing app count or increasing salespeople and all that. Right. Um, I would say that you're exactly right. I would say the first employee is obviously going to be the person that takes something off of your plate. If you see, you know, I was able to do 15 apps a month when I first started and then I started to have to do support and, you right. know, now I'm down to 10 and then now I'm down to six because I just three days of my week are spent servicing my existing customer base. And that's what we need to do. We need to service our clients, which means, you know, you keep the residual income coming in. At some point, you look at the critical mass and go, okay, what's my opportunity cost? You know, right. can I have, you know, can I have an assistant at, say, $15 an hour? Okay, so I'm going to lose $30,000 a year, $40,000 a year to have this person. But can I bring in twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 more in residual if I have them? Right. If the answer is no, then then don't do it. Of you course, know what I mean? Right, like, right. If the answer is yes, then it's a no-brainer. You're going you're gonna to take one step back. But in the next two years, you're going to take two steps forward. So that's always kind of the math you have to do is what's the opportunity cost? Right. And are we growing just to grow or are we growing to to make more money? Yeah. And it's like, you know, I always tell, you know, agents at this at this level that, you know, you can either look like you have money or you can actually have money. You you have to. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's very expensive (laughs) to look like you have money. Uh, And and so I think a lot of times there's this maybe this pride and this arrogance of like, I want to be able to say I have a big 
company or whatever. And I fell prey to it myself. We had, um, when I started my first like real ISO, I had an employee team that was like amazing. I had like three people and I was just making money like crazy. You know, the administrator, the uh, person that did my installations for me, my customer service person, right? And I'm selling 28, 30 deals a month. <clears throat> and it's like, I'm keeping all the residuals and I'm paying, you know, it's, this is amazing. Well, then I'm like, well, I'm better than this. You know, I can start a big company, you know? And, you know, you got to be careful what your motivation is because I think to your point, there is that middle stage where you actually don't make very much money. You're losing money by scaling. Yep. You know, growing your business is not like we're so much more profitable because we grew. If you really grew a lot the last year, you probably lost money. Yep. The more you grow, it's like super expensive. And so it's like, in my case, you know, we were able to grow to 200 deals a month. Well, that's profitable. You know, that's great, you know, but going from 20, 25 deals a month to 50 usually sucks. Like from a financial perspective, that's usually a really bad idea, actually, you know? Mm -hmm. So, all right. So, so let's shift gears a little bit, Kyle, talk to us about ISOs. So I've already got that team of three or four people. Uh, maybe I've got one sub agent, you know, an employee, an administrator, whatever. So now I want to really, I want to scale up. So I want to get from, you know, 20 to 30 deals a month. I want to get from there to, let's say 70 or 80. What are the things I need to consider in making that move? What are some of your thoughts on like what things should I take on? What things should I leave for the process? Or give us your thoughts on on that transition. Yeah, so I mean, it's I'll, I'll talk from what I've seen, not necessarily from experience. We're about twelve, well, thirteen employees, so um, and we're doing that forty-five, fifty apps a month. So we're kind of at that sure. level and it's steady, and we have partners and stuff like that. Right. But you know, the ones I've seen who have done it successfully, and you talk about this a lot in your podcast, is be good at one or two things find yeah. a vertical find a software mm -hmm. find something that really you know you're just gonna be really good at you don't have to be the processor that does everything right you need to be the processor that does something really good and our most successful agents do that one's in trash and as a trash software is in that space and he's doing great one has we've done an integration for one that does bed and breakfasts in small hotels so like those mm -hmm. guys get steady apps every month Right. And that's that because because that's what they're in and they, they're getting referrals, recommendations, stuff like that. If you're out there going, well, I'm going to put out a great bonus program, a free terminal program, and the apps are just going to kind of roll in. It's like, yeah, nah. but are those really the people you want to go. And I always tell my sales yeah. reps, you know, if you sell on price, you're going to lose the deal on price. Right. Right. But if you sell on integrations, efficiency, you know, those kinds of things. And that's also attached to, oh, by the way, your accounting software is recommending you know, that you as a processor, right now you've got it. So, right. Um, you know, we've done really well on a scaling side where we do a lot of the banks in the area. So for us, banks is kind of our vertical. Mm -hmm. uh, we're the Maryland Banker Association for provider. Um, you know, I mean, so we, we do heavy in that space. Um, but that's also still getting a little dangerous too, where, you know, we are getting probably about 60 to 70% of the banks, but these software companies are going in and going, hey, if you're going to use us as your software, you got to use... XYZ processor is your processor, or you have two options. Right. So again, we're already seeing that even even just being in the bank vertical is not strong enough anymore. You have to be attached to software integrations. Sure. Yeah, sure. I love that. I think that's so true. I, and I think I think if you're involved in the payments industry today and you're not, you know, totally all in on software integration. I, I don't know what it is you're doing, but it's not going to work. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. but I, mean, yeah. I love, I love what you said. And Kyle, I think if I could even rephrase a little bit in my, the way I would, I would say that is it's like, you know, who are you as an individual or as a brand? 
And it used to be okay to say, I'm a credit card processing sales professional. That's, <laughs> that's not enough anymore. You know, right. people want more. They want to hear you say, I'm a payments and integration expert for pizza shops. You know, mm -hmm. like, right, isn't it? Have you seen where it's like, you almost have to be that specific because to your point, if you want to get referrals, if you want to build your network, people need to know who you are, what you stand for, exactly what you do and what kind of value you can bring to the table. Otherwise, you know, you're just like everybody else. Yeah. Um, okay. So here's an interesting question for you. So we're talking about scaling, um, you know, talking about ISOs that maybe are in your kind of same, you know, size uh, and, and a little bit below. And, you know, how big is too big? Is there, you know, is there kind of this point of no return where it's like, okay, if you're going to go past this point, you better go all the way. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're not going to make very much money. And, and again, I can speak from experience on, the the other side of it where it's like doing the 200 deals a month i mean the amount of capital that we burned through you know i mean mm -hmm. literally we were burning i remember at one point we were burning about sixty thousand dollars a month that wow. you know, we were losing like that was our, our pro you know at the end of the month hey here's our profit and loss report you know we lost 60 grand we lost 100 grand and and i mean that wasn't like a crazy number it's just buying merchant accounts from 1099 agents is very expensive. It can play out in the big scale, but give us the, the idea of kind of from the other side of that, where do you kind of see that, that point of like, you know, for an ISO, how big is too big and how do you kind of make that decision of where to kind of, where to kind of be careful about the growth? Yeah. So, um, I was lucky enough. One of my, uh, other roommates in college was a math teacher. So we we actually built an algorithm on, you know, what is it, what's an ROI on one of our W2 sales. Sure. Rates. Sure. Um, we've got it down to about 17 months, um, before we break even on any deal. So what we pay them in commissions, what our overhead is, all that stuff. So right. as long as that sales rep is hitting their quota or going above their quota, we know in 17 months we're good. So the problem with that is now you have to go and go, okay, if I'm going to hire two more reps, and I'm going to borrow against my residuals at, I mean, the borrowing companies do about 20% <laughs> is their going rate right now for borrowing your residuals. You have to kind of look that up. I'm going to borrow a half million dollars, hire, you know, I'm going to need that. I'm going to need that to hire five sales reps for two years. Right. What's my ROI if they all hit their commission and right. hit their quota versus my cost of funds. Right. And in, and in three years, am I happy with what I'm making as a, as the owner of a, of a processor Going, okay, I've done all this work. I put all this money in. I put all the risk up. Right. I'm hoping all five of these sales reps hit their numbers. If they don't, I still owe back that money at 20%. You know, so those are the kind of decisions you have to make. And, and in our space, because it is residual income, almost nobody you're going to hire is willing to work on residual income. They right. want some of it. Right. You don't have to get much, but they want some of it. Right. But you have, they want a salary. They want, yeah, they want to make 50 want grand a year. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So you have to find a way to find that middle ground. So you're basically giving them, you're selling them the dream of what you've already figured out, which is residual income, but you only give them a piece of that dream because they still want to live. Right. Um, and then you just have to run that math out and go, what does that, how does that make sense? Um, to talk about even the bigger side of things, kind of the where we're at is, you know, we're very scared to get past that 15 employee mark. Once you get past that, there are all kinds of regulations in, um, in how you hire and rules about firing and stuff like that. So I think for yeah. us, we're looking at the next three to five years going, okay, we want to keep growing, but we don't want to get so much bigger that we get past that 15 employee mark. Right. So how do we stay at 15 employees and get more profitable? Right. You know, so we're, we're looking at it that way because that's our magic um, number. Cause once you get past that, now you need to hire an HR professional. Now you need to hire, 
a finance, right. you know, not just a billing person, but a CFO. Like right. now it has to scale appropriately. So that's that's kind of where our right. magic ceiling is right now. Not, that, not to say that won't change if the right opportunity comes along. For sure. But you've got to, it's got to be right a golden parachute, you know, yeah. not a lot of unknown right now. So Yeah. Well, and I, I think too, the other thing I hear you saying there is like, you, you have to map out these these finances, you know. So I don't know, like I always use, uh, you know, Microsoft Excel and I'll create a spreadsheet where I've got, you know, the next 36 months and I've got my categories over to the left. And then, you know, here's here's our total revenue. Here's our total expenses. And, you know, putting that together. I mean, you know, that kind of stuff takes a while. I know for consulting clients, a lot of times I'll spend half a day on something like that. But I think if you're if you don't if you're not able to see those numbers, you're just flying blind, you know, just because you're like, this sounds like a really good idea. We should scale up. Well, you know, have you run the numbers on it? Um, and I think, you know, one of the, one of the other things I, I tell my people a lot is now that we've, you know, we've grown and, and things like that with our company, it's like, whenever I'm looking at an opportunity, I want to know what's my best case scenario. What's my worst case scenario. And is, and, and how else could I make that same amount of money? Like yeah. sometimes you get to three years and you're like, okay, that looks pretty good. I'm making an extra $25,000 a month. Great. Well, then you're like, okay, but could you go all by yourself with one assistant and also make the 25,000 a month? <laughs> you know, yeah. if you could, well then why are you doing all of this again and taking all this extra risk? And so I think, you know, um, yeah, I, I think that's actually super interesting. So, you know, obviously each situation is new is a unique, but um, for an agent or an ISO that has to choose a processing provider. So obviously you guys have had to make this decision. Do I go with Tesis, First Data, Elevon, Pfizer, you know, whatever it is. Um, what are your thoughts on that? How do ISOs and, and agents that specifically are looking to grow, they want to scale? What are those key decision points in your mind of, of finding the right company? Yeah, so... Um... You know, for us, the decision was obviously um, we have bank partners, so we needed a back end that was very high service oriented. Um, okay. So we did choose a processor that um, you know, they gave us a penny and a half less and a half basis point worse than the best offer. Um, but at the end of the day, we knew if somebody from one of our merchants called that processor, we knew we would one, see a note about it. Right. So we'd be able to track it, that it was happening. And two, that they would get at least a you know, 95% chance that they're going to have a good experience on that phone call. They're not getting routed somewhere wrong or being transferred nine times or whatever. It's usually a one call solution or at least a, a good handoff, not just let me transfer you back into the queue one more time. Right. Um, so that was our big decision there. A couple other major ones I would say that, you know, most people need to think about is what type of business are you writing? I would say our backend currently now is very low risk tolerant. Um, right. You know, if they have a bad credit score or they're doing a lot of card not present or a lot of future delivery, you know, we're still offloading about four or five percent of our apps somewhere else because just this processor is just not risk tolerant. So if you're doing all moto, my process that I'm using right now is not the one you'd want to choose. Right. So right. Um, just understand, you know, not only is it the best price, the best split, the best service, but are they going to take the deals you're going to get? <laughs> um, right. You know, sure. and, and are they okay with that? Are they going to hold it? You know, that's my biggest problem with some of these processors. They'll approve everything, but then you're stuck answering calls because they're holding transactions. Uh, two you months don't want to get that call. Yeah, no. And so I would say those are the two biggest things. First for me is service. Second to me is, you know, risk and underwriting. And then all the way down there at third is probably price. You know what I mean? I would say, hmm. yes, you want a good deal, but, you know, if you're going to squeeze an extra penny out of, out of it, look at your, look at your numbers. Okay, right. a million pennies. That would make an extra $10,000. It's the same thing. If you had to take 
10 risk phone calls a month, that $10,000 is already out the door because now you're the one handling all those issues and not right. selling. And you're losing yeah, accounts sure. left and right. You know, so, yeah, that's interesting. And so I think that even begs a larger question, though, because, you know, there's so many other things today that you can, you know, whether you, you look at a payback model or something, there's so many other things you could take on if you wanted to. You know, whether it's risk, underwriting, um, even sending out the statements, you know what I mean? Like, what are your what's your opinion on kind of that? You know, there's so many of these processors now that will say, hey, you can do as much or as little as you want. Where do you go along those lines? Are you thinking more like let's let the processor do everything possible that they can do? So we focus on this or is it we do want that control? Like, what are your thoughts on that side of it? Yeah, um, I learned early in the industry at the first account that we saw a loss on that not us. We don't take on any risk. Our agents don't take on any risk, but I saw my processor take on risk. Right. The first one was about four years into the business. It was a 100% key, uh, swiped account. It was a bridal shop. They got to tax season, couldn't pay their tax bill, went out of business, and the Ooh. processor had to eat $16,000 in bridal dress deposits. Um, oh, you know wow. what I mean? So, again, you look at that deal, go, is it risky, is it not? I would have said, no, it's not, that's not risky. It's, it's all cheap right. entered. It's all swipe. It's all whatever, right. but it still happens. So for me, right. I like to sleep at night, not knowing that there's not a merchant out there doing something that I can't, even if I was monitoring that account, that account wouldn't have gotten flagged. Right. So, right. you know, that's, that's where I feel about the risk side of things. Um, on the other stuff, I mean, like our names are on our statements. Most of these guys will white label your, your statements for you. Right. Um, our phone numbers on our statements now. I mean, most of the stuff that you can do, you know, we're about to take PCI in, in-house. Um, okay. There's a little bit of revenue bump for us. But again, we got to the size now where we want the control yes. to help our customers. Um, but again, it's a net neutral for us. What I have to pay an employee to do versus right. the extra money I'm making on PCI, right. it's net neutral, but I'm making that decision. So again, it's a it's about what you want to have happen. And if it's about making a little bit more money, I would say don't do it. Right. But if it's about, you know, like we're doing with PCI, it's about making sure that I don't get angry calls and have to keep refunding PCI fees every month. Right, right. And that's the reason we're choosing to, to take that over, even if we make an extra $2 a month per PCI fee or whatever it is. Sure. Um, you know, that's those are the decisions that we're making. It's a, it's It sounds like it's a control issue too, right? Is that's what you're saying is the control has its own value. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like that. I think it's... Um, I think it's one of the big traps, actually, that a lot of smaller uh, companies do fall into, you know, and like like one of the things you were saying there that I think is interesting is, you know, you're you're at a scale where you have enough merchant accounts that at least it is a break even for you to take on PCI. Right. Yeah. If I have 200 accounts, if I have 300 accounts, why on earth would I want to take on something that's going to make me an extra, you know, eight hundred dollars a month? And it's going to take an employee, you know, an extra 10 hours a week to do it. Like, you know, so I think, yeah, I think it's, the, you know, just taking something on, you know, to your point, I think only take it on if you believe you can do it better. And if it's going to help you to differentiate yourself in the marketplace, not just like, oh, I just want to take this on. No, that's that's usually a really, really bad idea. <laughs> so and I think risk is to me, risk is I'm always amazed when I talk to companies and, and I talk to a lot that are, you know, they've got a thousand merchant accounts. And they decided to take on risk to make the extra three basis points. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, I mean, that could play out really good for you for a year. But, you know, the first time you have four merchants in a row that you lose $60,000 on, all of a sudden that decision doesn't look very good anymore. 
you know, no. right. I think what they always tell us, I mean, I've asked about that a few times for different people. They're always talking about if you're looking to sell your ISO quickly, taking on risk is important. So if you're, if your goal at the end Good of it point. is to sell it, yes, you know, to own the, own the paper, to own the underwriting, to own it end to end. So you can present your book of business and you can stand behind what it is to right. an acquiring bank that wants to buy it from you. Right. Then, yeah, then, then and they'll go in deep into that. But at right. that point, again, same thing, you would need an 80,000 to a hundred thousand dollar a year risk manager just to right. do that piece. And then right. if you have a single loss or two, now what's the point? Unless again, you're trying to, your goal is three years to sell off or your goal right. is, you know, whatever yep. your goals are, it kind of depends on what you want to do. Yeah. Let me dig into one more real quick and then, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, one more kind of side thought on this. Um, I want to talk about capital for a second because you brought it up a couple of times. Um, now for me in this industry, I have always been a big believer in using other people's money, specifically the, the processor. So yeah. Every time I've ever done a deal, and that's obviously I sold my last ISO five years ago, so I've been out of the game a little while on that front. But you know, when I was burning that hundred thousand a month, and you know, and stuff, you know, that wasn't my money. Uh, I you know was borrowing that from the processing company at a very low interest rate because I was saying, hey, look, I'll be exclusive with you, I'll bring my deals to you, but I need a you know two million dollar line of credit, so yeah. so I can get past the burn rate. Um, what are your thoughts on? you know, capital where, you know, where did you guys get your capital to grow? Did you bootstrap it? Have you used other like processing companies? Do you have any, any kind of tips for people that say, well, yeah, I'd like to, I really do want to get to that next phase, but I need $500,000. Where do I get it? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, um, in the beginning we had an angel investor, we had 50,000 in the very, very beginning. I had my first employee, a family friend, he came back again for the 250 that we did. Um, when we try to go national, um, once you get above that hundred thousand mark, you, you start running out of friends who have that kind of cash laying around. So, um, you right. know, you go to the, you go to the ones that are out there. Um, we've used super G about three times now. Um, we did too. We did too. A, been, yeah. Darren Ginsburg over there yep. and, and Josh and all the guys. So, um, they've been really good. They, um, they'll give some free legal advice too, which has always been nice. So they'll kind of like look at your current, you know, right. book and your contracts and go, Okay, we're okay with this, but maybe you might want to renegotiate some of these terms because they make us nervous. Right. Um, you know, so they've been good. Now, it's it's um, how do I put it? It's still very expensive capital to get. You know what oh I mean? yeah. It's yeah. Um, <laughs> so while they are a yeah. great company, they are taking on the risk that your right. ISO that your current processor is not going to pull the rug out from underneath the other. You're not right. going to walk away from servicing your customers that. So I don't blame them. That's a lot of risk for them to take on to give sure. you cash only secured by essentially a portfolio or two. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I think that's where that, that is. And again, it goes back to if I'm going to take 100000 and it costs me twenty k a year to have that, I better be coming out of their side of it making 200000 because right. what's the point? You know what I mean? Because right. at the end of three years, Super G's made sixty. i I've paid back my 100 you know, I better right. at least have made more than that, you know? So right. um, when you look at that capital, look at that expensive side of that. Um, as far as the processor strike goes with the, with the lending, I think there's a lot of good processors that do that well. Um, and they lock you in as exclusivity. They'll do that kind of stuff. Um, I think their model is definitely about showing growth to their investors. Yes. Um, so they have it's VC all about money. Count. Yeah. So if, if, you know, they're already out there buying portfolios, they're already right. out there buying ISOs, right. You know, so essentially what they're doing is they're probably looking at you going, okay, if I give James a half a million dollars, I'm going to tell him like I own his ISO on the books. Right. They don't own you, but right. they're going to book you as if they own you until that loan is paid off. Yep. So on, on, on a spreadsheet somewhere, 
James Shepard ISO looks like an asset. Right. I'm just like I'm a, just a line on the spreadsheet for a big company. Yeah. Yeah. No, yep. you're right. And it's and it's interesting too because I think I think how do I put this? Um I think for a lot of ISOs that are smaller, what they don't seem to understand is that their their lack of stress and their <laughs> smooth sailing in life, you know, mm-hmm. they don't they don't sufficiently value that. Right. Like they don't understand if I'm going to go now, again, you can go to super G as you mentioned, and we would do that like in between deals. Right. So like <laughs> I have this processor funding my hundred thousand a month. I'm losing. I get it to where I'm not losing any money. We're just about break even, but we need a little bit to get to the next relationship. So let's go to super G. They'll give you a loan against your portfolio. Um, and then we get the next deal. But the thing they don't realize is when you go to a processor and you like sell your soul to the processor for a $2 million line of credit, you will have to perform. And if you don't, they will sue you and they will take everything that you have. Like they are going to make money one way or the other Mm -hmm. from you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I think, uh, I think it's like, you know, the level of stress, like now in my business, you know, no, no risk for me, no debt, you know, positive cash flow, training and technology. Great. You know what I mean? The level of stress now with my business versus then is, is crazy different. I mean, you know, when it's like I'm using somebody else's money and I've got to come through on that. So I think it's, I think it's a huge decision to make. And I think it's for some people, for me, my wife, Christina will tell you, I love to wake up in the morning and be stressed. I love it. I'm like, let's go, you know, let's, I gotta, I gotta climb this mountain here, you know, good night. How are we going to do this? Some people don't like that, you know, that's not their thing. And so I think that's an important consideration. So Kyle, I think we could talk to you for another hour, but we better, we better wrap this one up. So, um, you know, I'm sure people want to connect with you, learn more about you, learn more about Mercantile. So where would you send people that want to learn more about you and what you guys do? Yeah, so our, our website is um, MPI, it's Mary Paul Indigo Processing.com. Uh, we also have our point of sale division, which is MPIPOS.com. Um, for us, the 1-800 number is there. Um, the uh, sales team, which also has me on the email, is partner support at MPIProcessing.com. I'll go to me, my director of sales, any of us on the uh, support side. Um, so they're interested in, in working with us. Our, our niche for a- agents and people now are, like I said, the bigger the agents that need help with the integration side. So we usually become more of a technology sure. arm, a little less of a, of a, just an app place you want to put apps. So if they want yeah. help with talking tech or talking integration. Those are the agents that we really want. Um, you know, and, um, you know, awesome. so that's that's kind of the contact point. So yeah, I like that. No, that's good. So well, I think what you're saying is the the agents you're looking for are ones that maybe have a specific vertical or whatever it is, but they've got a technology need and they need to integrate and they want a partner that they can depend on to bring those integrations to to, to happen. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Kyle, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Great information. I'm sure our audience is going to love it. So I really appreciate you taking the time. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. So, you know, we've been spending a lot of time these last few months discussing the coronavirus pandemic and the impact on consumer spending. And this week, I want to hone in a little bit on the impact on how consumers choose to pay. 
Okay. And the inf- and the information I'm about to present was drawn from uh, recent uh, presentations by Visa, Mastercard execs to analysts. Okay. So first up, Visa uh, EVP Oliver Jenkin um, spoke to Barrett and Company uh, recently, and the big news here is that declines in spending are slowing, but also that growing numbers of consumers are spending with debit cards, not credit cards. Yeah, I saw this report, actually. I'm really excited to talk about this. I didn't, I didn't know you're doing this today, but I just saw a report about this. So yeah, this is yeah, really yeah. interesting. It was, I also noticed after I reviewed it all, re- reviewed these transcripts, I think uh, CNBC and Reuters and a few other people did some stuff on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's really compelling. I mean, uh, credit card, Visa credit card transactions were down 21% in May compared to May 2019 but they were up 9% from April. So, okay. Okay. From April, 2020. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, and not surprisingly, much of the growth is tied to card, not present transactions. Um, in fact, sure. e-commerce transactions grew 12% in April versus April, 2019. But here's the really interesting thing. Uh, debit card payments were up 12% in May compared to last May. And Jenkins said the changes in payment preferences are similar to those that uh, Visa saw back in 2008 when we had the, you know, the financial meltdown. And again, in 2018, when the federal government shut down, but he thinks this trend is going to continue past the current pandemic as more people remain edgy over borrowing. Hmm. Uh, He cited some internal visa analysis that suggests $100 billion a year in transactions are going to shift to debit from credit from credit. Yeah, I saw that. I I don't like do you what do you think about that? I mean, just like high level. Do you do you agree with that or not? I was like, it's hard for me to swallow. I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of leaning towards it. I mean, I think it's a high number. I'm not sure if that number is precise, but I think we're going to see a lot more people. You know, who just, uh, you know, I'm do you, just do you think sure is, wanna... it, is it a function of a a lack of available capital? Like they've maxed out their credit cards and now they can't use it? Or no, do you, or you I think, think it's, it's a function of people. I know with myself reserves. and people that I know, right? We're just a little edgy about, I don't want to build up my balances right now because I'll be honest, I'm one of those people that doesn't pay off my balances every month. Sure. Sure. Okay. And I think there's a lot of people like, oh, me. for sure. Yeah, of course. For sure. Right. And, and so, you know, the last, in the last few years, I've been making a concerted effort to get all of my balances down to zero. Right. 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 And now I'm in that place where like, I have, you know, I have a balance on one card, the others are zero and I just want to keep it that way. Right. Yeah, you're you know? glad you got it down to that level. Well, and is it is it like a fear of like what's driving this? Is it a fear? I think of it's a fear. The the, yeah. the pandemic, like, what if there's a resurgence and the economy shuts down again? Is that is that kind exactly, of the idea? exactly? Okay. And in fact, I just had this conversation with two of my friends and and another colleague recently, where they all said, "Look, we don't know when this is gonna if this is gonna crop up again." Sure, uh, sure. We have a big we have a big election coming. Whenever there's a change in administration, things get a little bit iffy. Right. Right. And if there's not a change in the ministry, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's so many, everything is up in the air right right now. now, Mm -hmm. And people are just concerned, like, okay, I have my job right now, but what if this thing really blows up and I'm stuck? You know, I want to keep those credit card balances near zero so that if I have to use my credit because I've lost my job, I have it's available. 
huh? It's like and a, I think like that's a safety what blanket. The thing is. Yeah. And I also think that you're seeing, you know, it, 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 this also goes to the contactless thing, right? Because sure. contactless tends to be debit transactions because they're small dollar transactions. Hmm. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, you know, and, and he, it's also, um, he describes, um, what's his name? Um, Jenkin. Yeah. He's, he describes it as a pragmatic, prag, quote, pragmatic trend. Um, because he also says that more consumers are opting for cards with low or no annual fees and cashback rewards instead of travel rewards. Well, that makes sense, obviously, because you can't go. Right. (laughs) What are you going to do with your travel rewards right now? And Uh, I'll be honest, the one card that I have a balance on right now is my discover because I get cashback rewards and they're like, sure. You know, I go on the Amazon. Hey, you want to use your cashback balance? You know, right. So well, I it's, think that it's that's an interesting, a, uh, interesting. It's, it's an interesting trend. It's like the, the two things I see with that would be number one, I would be, I want to go on record as saying, I don't think that's going to happen. So, you know, I'm, I could be wrong, but I'll be interested. Yeah. I, I really feel like, I really feel like, you know, 90 days from right now, I think when we get into the fall, um, I think when we get into the Thanksgiving and the, the holiday shopping period, I don't think you're going to see a huge difference in the percentage of debit versus last year. So I disagree with this guy, but I could definitely be wrong. He's obviously a lot smarter than I am at Visa there, but you know, uh, yeah, and they we'll have see. all those analysts doing of all course. the number crunching. Yeah, of so. course. He's, he's got an army behind him, but I still think he's wrong, but you know. And I do think so. that, you know, you could see something between him during that whole Chris, uh, Thanksgiving to Christmas rush. Right. I think that's when people people are going to finally be like, you know what? We're good. Let's go. Let's let's shop. Let's go. Let's, I want to spend some money, but you know, I think you're also going to see, you know, people going, okay, well, I mean, think, I really think it all depends on what happens with this pandemic. I I agree. There's, there's so many variables. Nobody could make a really like rock solid prediction of anything right right now. But I do Um, think, you know, you're going to see, we're definitely seeing, you know, he noted, for example, you know, a both uh, Jenkin and um, Craig Vosberg, who mm-hmm. was um, from MasterCard, speaking to some analysts at, uh, oh, I think it was, uh, uh, what does it matter? Oh, Moffat Nathanson, that's who we spoke to. Okay. Uh, both of them, you know, spoke to something you and I have discussed before, and that's the, the huge increase in contactless payments. Sure. Um, you know, uh, Jenkin put it a significant displacement transaction lift that we've seen in other markets, and now it's building steam here in the U.S. Sure, Um, sure. Bosberg said um, that, uh, again, you know, speaking to the uptick in contactless, he said, I believe that even more today, and that will be, that will get to ubiquity sooner because of the circumstances around the COVID. Oh, yeah, 100% agree with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and I also thought here was another interesting thing that came out of both Visa and MasterCard. Um, and, and, and again, it's, it goes to some of the stuff that you and I have spoken to. You know, we see a lot of trends, particularly with the restaurant sector, with uh, online ordering, curbside pickup. Mm-hmm. And that's going to stick around. Oh, my. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting. I was looking at, um, I think it's called Darden, uh, the, the company uh-huh. that owns Olive Garden and uh, right. Red Lobster and uh, Longhorn Steakhouse. And uh, I actually own some stock in them, so full disclosure. But um, I really like their company because, you know, I feel like through all of this, you know, their revenues have been way down. But the fact is they are 
you know, they have implemented really awesome delivery and pickup services mm -hmm. that I think are going to continue past. And I, and I think they're actually going to come out of this where people are still going to want to go eat at Olive Garden, but I think people are also going to want to, um, you know, they're going to want delivery. They're going to want pickup They're You know, they're going to want all of that um, because we've gotten used to it. I love it. You know, I'm all about yeah, it. Yeah. You know? I thought it was so. really interesting. I ride by a red lobster lot. And I have to admit, I like that's one of the places I like to go to. Yeah. And it was always in the past. They had one little space for curbside pickup. Yeah. Now, now they have the whole six parking spaces. lot, you know. <laughs> right. Right. So, right. Right. and I think it sort of goes to that contactless at all. It's not only contactless payments, it's contactless interactions. Right. And people see, wow, this is really convenient. This works yeah. really nicely. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to keep on doing this. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Right. You know, I'm going to, uh, you know, I always like to sort of take the opposite of you. So, you know, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> things interesting. So yeah. I'm going to go with debit is debit's going to continue rising and, and let's see what happens. Yeah. Let's see it. I, I really want to get, let's get an update and, you know, let's do a three month update or something and see where yeah, it's at. For I, sure. I'll be very we interested will. to see. So awesome stuff. Uh, Patty, as always, thanks for sharing with us. Sure thing. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field, with James Shepard. All right, in today's question from the field, um, I got a phone call. I just finished having a conversation with an agent, uh, and we were talking about this problem where they are with a, they represent a particular processing company, a very large, one of the big, big companies, and there is another rep who represents the same company who kind of came through their area and gave that processor a bad rap, a bad you know reputation. Um, and so now uh, this rep is struggling with, okay, what do I do? How do I overcome this problem? And so I was talking about, you know, the way you present yourself, and this is so crucial. You know, one of the things you have to understand, you know, there's, there's really two different types of organizations in this industry you can sell for, and you really need to understand which one of them you're selling for. The first type of organization you can sell for is the, the company that has a very public um, brand and they're very concerned about making sure that their brand is, you know, sterling and that they're dealing with any issues that are coming up. A lot of times these are your smaller ISOs. They really stand for something. And in those situations, you can represent yourself as, hey, I'm with XYZ company and, you know, as you're just part of the company. Now, the other type of organization are these processors and even often acquirers that are very large. And you have to understand that their purpose is that they're not really a direct-to-merchant brand. Now, they may have certain divisions that are direct-to-merchant. Maybe they're ISV integrations or things like that. But as far as their traditional mom-and-pop shops that you might be selling, um, they don't really have a merchant-facing brand per se. It's not like they're out there constantly trying to get their brand in front of merchants. Instead, their main function is to enable... 1099 contractor agents to sell credit card processing services however they see fit. So that means if the individual wants to price the merchant really high, 
they let them price the merchant really high. If they want to price the merchant low, they let them price the merchant low. Um, they don't aren't exercising a ton of control. And so when you find yourself in that situation where maybe you're selling for one or more of these larger companies that are just enabling you to sell, they're trying to give you the ability to sell, but they're not really controlling the way you sell. Um, then you have to be careful how you present yourself. Make sure when you go in, you're not going in with, you know, hey, I don't go in and say, hey, my name is James Shepard with XYZ Company, right? Um, instead, I go in and say, you know, hey, my name is James Shepard. I'm a payments broker and I work with different payment processing companies to find the best deals and the best technology for my clients. And so I like to present myself that way. And then what would happen is, if somebody, if, you know, let's say I presented an app to them that was from, you know, a company, let's just say First Data, since they're like the biggest one out there. So, you know, I present a, a, you know, something from First Data and they're like, oh, I hate First Data. I got ripped off by them and all this stuff. You know, understand it's not that First Data is evil. It's that there was an agent or an ISO that was selling for first data that was dishonest or lacked integrity and did things they shouldn't have done. And so you have to explain that to the merchant. Don't be afraid to tell the merchant and say, you know, let me explain how this works. You know, um, yes, first data is one of the companies I offer, but understand first data is literally just a provider for companies like mine. And I have several of these companies like this that are providers for me. So the good thing is we have a lot of different options. The bad thing is you have to understand that I'm offering you a really good deal. I'm offering you really good service. I'm offering you really good support. But understand that First Data is not controlling that. And so you could have very easily had somebody several years ago from First Data that you know, they're not from first data. They're just offering first data services just like I am. But what they're providing is high prices, poor service, poor support, right? Low integrity. Um, and that's a problem. And so, you know, just understand Mr. Merchant that that's how the, the infrastructure of our industry works. It's not about the name of the brand behind it. What matters is the company you're actually dealing with, which in this case is me. So be careful how you present stuff. Um, I think that you'll find this tip will help you again if you're, you know, just understand, think about the level of control. How much is the brand that you represent? How much do they control your actions and your pricing? I'm not saying they should control it. I'm just saying you need to be aware of the level of control they're exercising over their brand. If they control their brand pretty tightly, if they're making sure that people are getting a great deal, um, good. Then say, hey, I'm James Shepard with XYZ Processing Company. But if they're not exercising that control, and if it's possible that there's a lot of negative reviews online and there's a lot of other agents that are you know, being disreputable and doing the wrong thing, that doesn't mean that that's an evil company. What it means is that company is just enabling resellers to do whatever they want. And so you're doing good things, other people are doing bad things, but you've got to present yourself as like a payments broker and explain how the industry really works, uh, you know, to those people. So, hey, thanks so much for taking time to join us in this episode. I really appreciate it. Um, I hope that you enjoyed this. Our, again, our first video here on YouTube of our podcast. We're going to do our best to put these out every week now so that you can watch uh, the episode. I think you get a little bit more out of it when you see the interactions and the facial expressions and things like that. And so it's been a goal of mine to get this on YouTube. We've got it up now and we're going to keep it there. So we're really excited. Thanks again for joining us. Hope you have a terrific day. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.